So it's a city about the same size as Tulsa, just slightly smaller. And like Tulsa, the city uses those large wheeled trash bins. And like Tulsa, many homeowners in Coventry in the UK install closed circuit television just to keep watch over their homes and yards. The pedestrian is not thinking about these surveillance cameras when walking by a cat sauntering along a brick wall. But thanks to modern technology, we can watch that cat jump up to waist height. The clever cat positions itself at prime petting level. So the person walking by doesn't even have to bend over. Just reach out a hand and rub along the cat's back. It is a simple, domestic, neighborly moment. Endearing. The pedestrian momentarily pauses, hand still on the cat's head, and looks around. Because cars are passing by, and it's easy to imagine the person is wondering about the safety of the cat. That's the story I made up. Here is someone's pet roaming around near a busy street. Maybe I could do something to help it. Backing up a few steps to get in front of the cat, the cat stops. And using one hand to pick up the cat by the scruff of the neck, while simultaneously using the other hand to open up the wheelie bin just on the other side of the wall, the person drops the cat in the bin and walks off. Well, in our modern world, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how both evil and good are magnified by our computers and our phones and our televisions and the internet and how we navigate, or really how do we navigate, this changing, ever-changing signal-to-noise ratio of information and these non-stop small morality plays that are everywhere, 24-7. I have done some really stupid things in my life. Some even merit the description of evil. Luckily, to my knowledge, none of them are caught on camera. That's for the transition committee to try and see if they can Google it and find it. (laughs) So 16 hours after this poor cat gets dropped into the wheelie bin and the lid closed, Daryl and Stephanie Mann hear the meows coming from it. And according to newspaper articles, they believed Lola who is not yet a year old, must have been dumped by drunken louts 
But when they checked the footage on their security camera to see how she ended up in the bin, they were shocked to discover it was the work of a middle-aged woman. Okay, I have to say not all middle-aged women (laughs) are cat haters. But just like our congregation, the Internet is home to animal lovers. Millions of pet pictures on YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram attest to this worldwide compassion. And as you might guess, this video went viral. In fact, the posting helped the man's identify Mary Bale as the kitten dumper. (laughs) And the resulting media news completely ruined Mary Bale's life. She received death threats, calls for revenge attacks. Immediately after being ID'd as the cat dumper, Mary explains, I was playing with it, stroking it, listening to it purr as it stood on that garden wall. It was very friendly. I don't know what came over me, but I suddenly thought it would be funny to put it in the wheelie bin, which was right beside me. I never thought it would be trapped. I expected it to wriggle out of the bin. I shouldn't have done it. But it's just a cat at the end of the day. I don't think I deserve to be hated by all the people in the world. It was just a split second of madness. Cats are good climbers, and I assumed it would just scramble out through the lid and go on its way. So Mary is a 45-year-old Bank of Scotland employee, and she makes countless public apologies, repeatedly meets with the animal protection agencies, and pays all the imposed fines that total over $2,000, $2,700. And despite these efforts to repair her mistake, her life is completely ruined from the overnight, overwhelming media spotlight. So that one moment becomes eternal. So with video cameras and police cars and traffic lights and inside and outside buildings, we imagine our ability to discern good from evil now can be easily documented and quantified and judgments rendered. We can see for ourselves what really happens when the stakes are human lives, such as that recent string of cell phones and police camera videos documenting interactions between authorities and citizens, between blacks and whites, we feel we're better informed. We can flex our morality muscles, assured we are right because we saw it too. Maybe this proliferation of closed-circuit televisions watching us is directly related to the secularization of our society. In the old days, old days, God 
was the all-knowing witness, the divine security camera. And he would have caught Mary's wrongdoing, or she would have caught Mary's wrongdoing. And Mary would have to pay for her transgressions later, in the afterlife. The accumulation of her earthly lifelong footage would become the determining factor in whether she was judged good or evil or if she went to heaven or hell. But now we get to play God. When we watch that tsunami of security camera videos posted on the internet, we become the heavenly judge, sorting out good and evil in the unfolding dramas. Some are banal, and some are horrific. We want the good guys to be rewarded, and we really want the bad guys to suffer. One psychological effect of playing God and watching from afar is it's this weird dynamic of both intimate engagement in the action in someone else's life and at the same time this really comfortable distant detachment I can rest assured I am good because I am clearly not Mary Bale putting a cat in the trash can or Eric Garner proclaiming loudly he is minding his own business or the New York police officers who wrestle him to the ground while he protests that he can't breathe. I remain the good character in all that. I'm not Ray Rice, slapping then punching my fiancé, and I'm not Janae Palmer, out cold, being dragged out of the elevator. So safely removed from these situations and with usually only one angle of view, sometimes there's more than one, we quickly draw our conclusions about good and evil, like that. From my experiences as a photographer and documentary filmmaker, I really hope God's view of us is more comprehensive than a security camera. Because from years of filming and editing, I know that putting a frame around a scene changes it completely. The angle of view affects our perceptions. Sound is a significant influence. The difference between between being present in a situation versus seeing a video is the difference between eating that hot, fresh, wood-fire-baked slice of pizza and a picture of it. Even if we're a witness of that event, just as we are constant witnesses of our own lives, our perceptions and judgments are often extremely unreliable. Our limited perspectives, coupled with imperfect memory storage, warped by stress or health, any number of other factors, make us fickle eyewitness account. We're more like the clay people with no ears and maybe no eyes. 
Any video clip repeated frequently enough can become shorthand for evil, a meme of hate. Someone made a Facebook page called Death to Mary Bale. Strings of heated comments, protest marches, and retaliatory violence unspool as quickly as the videos that inspire them. Our appetite for punishment becomes ravenous in this rising sea of electronic morality plays. It's exactly in this swirling pool of media that Majid Nawaz, Majid Nawaz, a Western-born Muslim, finds his voice of rebellion. He grows up in London, living on a steady diet of American hip-hop, graffiti, and dance. And he has a gradual yet complete ideological transformation from a disillusioned young British teenager to a hardened Islamist recruiter. In his memoir, Radical, My Journey Out of Islamist Extremism, he describes how at age 16 he's transformed from a disaffected British teenager to an Islamist recruiter when he joins the Islamist group Hizbub Tahrir. I came to live and was prepared to die to counter what I saw as American hegemony on a global scale. Spending a year abroad in Egypt where he continues his recruiting, he's caught and imprisoned. So in this foreign jail for four years, he describes how he is surrounded by several prominent jihadist leaders. Essentially, prison for him is a graduate seminar on radicalization. Gets to learn from the best. Until Nawaz gets his hands on George Orwell's animal farm. That classic allegory that depicts a farm where the animals form a democratic democratic society that quickly dissolves into a brutish dictatorship. In the end, the piggish leaders proclaim, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. The book was a stinging critique of the history and rhetoric of the 1917 Russian Revolution and Stalin's rise to power. In one preface, um, Orwell writes, preface to one edition, the edition from uh, Czechoslovakia, actually, Orwell writes, how easily totalitarian propaganda can control the opinion of enlightened peoples in democratic countries. So after reading Animal Farm, Nawaz comes to a new understanding of what happens when somebody tries to create a utopia. He says, I begin to connect the dots and think, my God, if these guys that I'm here with ever come to power, they would be the Islamist 
equivalent of Animal Farm. If this caliphate, this theocratic caliphate, was ever established, it would be a nightmare on earth. Nawaz realizes he wants a different path, so when he's released from prison, he ends up rejoining the Hizbab Tahrir, but now his goal is to see how he can counter their ideology and hate from within the organization, since he's a trusted insider. Noble. But the task proves impossible, so instead he returns to London and starts Quilliam, a think tank and foundation devoted to countering the narratives of extremism. He's trying to counter the Islam and jihadist stories. And Nawaz makes clear a distinction between Islam, the religion, and Islamists and jihadists. Islamists and jihadists are seeking to establish a state that enforces their interpretation of Islam on everyone else. And then he says the difference between Islamists and jihadists is jihadists want it right now. So what he's doing with Quilliam is taking the tools that spread hate, those countless videos, and instead creating counter-narratives, trying to replace what inspired him with other stories that make clear, well, it's not quite as it seems. Because he believes we can't legislate our way out of this problem, and we cannot fight our way out of this problem. Instead, the work is to understand the stories that feed extremism. Understand what problems they're trying to correct, and tell the story about they're not effective for correcting that. In fact, they make it worse. We're dealing with a global ideology that has reached insurgency levels. We're dealing with the spread of ideas that have come to inspire entirely new generations of young Muslims to join up, that no matter how many people we kill, and no matter how many people we imprison, more and more Islamists and more and more jihadists are coming forward. We recognize that we're dealing with a new global brand. Then the challenge really is to make the Islamist brand today as unattractive as other extremist brands in the past. No disaffected London teenager is joining Marxists and Stalinists. That's no longer sexy. <coughs> Jihadist suicide bombing cult is built upon making the word of Islam the highest and to establish the authority of Islam. You're allowed to sacrifice your own life in killing the so-called infidel. Until, he points out, 
And this is the counter-narrative he wants to tell. Until these Islamists and jihadists start arguing over which one of them really represents the true word of God. And that creates schisms. And that desire for certainty, that search for certainty, that desire to be absolutely right is what causes schisms. So in Iraq right now, you have Al-Qaeda, who we thought were the worst of the worst, now fighting and killing ISIL, ISIS, vice versa. They're killing each other. And this is part of that counter-narrative he's trying to tell. When we put out there this information to say these groups are killing each other first and foremost, before even killing infidels. And if you go there to join jihad, you'll be killing each other. That's the nature of any form of dogma. And in particular, dogma in the name of God. It ultimately will turn on itself. So these online morality plays 24-7 makes evil and good magnified. Evil and good are given equal weight. The proliferation of the videos is actually neutral, but how they're used and how we respond to their growing quantity and daily intrusive nature matters in our understanding of good and evil we can begin to experience moral burnout. We can develop knee-jerk reactions, equally condemning the latest beheading of a Japanese journalist with the momentary insanity of a woman dumping a cat. Death to both of them. Over the centuries, any valid and healthy religious community and I'll put Hope Church in that category, has always provided a critique of destructive ideologies. And each era brings new challenges, new forms of good, new configurations of evil. And today, simply sorting through our own behavior and the systems of our communities to denounce evil and magnify good becomes linked with the additional challenge of countering all those that overdose of narratives. It's like slogging through I don't know what, molasses. We have additional work taking additional thought and plans and actions because we are so inundated with good and evil and we're part of it and we're distant from it. So that's our task. Not, not simply to be the religious community that says this is evil, this is good, but how do you maintain your humanity and your dignity in the face of a confetti parade of both good and evil. May it be so.